Amen, amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace. And we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. It is a joy to see you guys gathering here together in person. If you're with us online, again, welcome. We're so glad that you would uh, choose to, to join us this morning. And, and as we look at trying to be shaped and formed as disciples of Jesus Christ, we go to God's Word each and every week. And so this fall, we've been in this series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We have Bibles for you out at the table. You can also uh, grab our discipleship guide for this series. And we're going to be in week six here, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. And so this, this series that we've called Vapor, Finding Meaning Under the Sun has been looking at this book of Ecclesiastes that we said is one large sermon, we believe preached by Solomon, a king in Israel, in kind of the, the twilight of his life, hoping to pass some wisdom and, and maybe enlightenment, some, some direction to a generation of people um, who have in some regards lost their minds and lost their faith. And so he says, hey, I, I want to remind you what's true. And, and I want to start, and a lot of this book spends time in looking at the world under the sun, which is this phrase that means the life that we lead apart from, separated from God. The idea of a world in existence divorced from its creator who made it. He said, when we're trying to find meaning, we're trying to find purpose in these situations, in these circumstances, when it's apart from the sun, we're going to be very disappointed. And so the first few chapters, to, to catch you up, chapters 1 and 2, um, he talks a lot about these endless cycles of the sun rising and setting and generations coming and generations going. And he says, hey, apart from the God who made us under the sun, all of that is vanity or is meaningless. Or another translation is vapor, meaning like it's just... It's hard to really grasp at having any real substance. And so Solomon goes about an experiment to try to find meaning under the sun. And he does it through wisdom and knowledge and, and all that. And he says at a certain point, you just get really frustrated the more you watch the news, the more you read and study, because, because you end up seeing more brokenness in the world. And so he said, hey, forget it. Let's just go party. Let's party hard. Let's go, you know, full throttle. Just, you know, this is going to be fire festival, except it's actually going to be awesome, and it's not going to be terrible. And, and he throws the biggest, uh, most amazing parties you could ever imagine. And, and then at the end of the night, he's just frustrated. He's still empty. Because no pursuit of earthly pleasure can satisfy us eternally when, when it's temporary. Because he says we're made to know and experience and, and, and be wired to not be right now in the moment people, but to be eternity people. And so he, as he kind of sobers up and wakes up and, and brushes off the hangover, he says, I'm going to pursue work as much as I can. And, and I'm going to accomplish, and I'm going to achieve, and I'm going to earn, and I'm going to do all these things. And he's still left unsatisfied because... He said, well, eventually I'm going to have to hand this off to somebody who didn't work for it. Or, wow, I mean, I mean, am I really actually accomplishing, again, something eternal? What's the purpose of all of it? 
And so he said this laboratory he was in was like a dark basement. And as we get to chapter 3, into chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we say, hey, the, the, the curtains have kind of started to be open in this dark laboratory. Sunlight has started to come in. It started to illuminate. And we started to, to start to frame the world, history and our individual experiences, not just under the sun, but under heaven. Meaning, hey, there is a God above the sun. There is something more than what we experience. There is transcendence. There is purpose and there is meaning. We're not an accident. And so as we get into chapter 3, it talks about these cycles again uh, of, of seasons and, 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 you know, for every season, turn, 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 right? And, and, and he said, hey, no, because there is a God in heaven, all of these seasons, even our seasons of desolation, uh, of, of brokenness, they all have a purpose because they lead to seasons of mending and of healing, even seasons of war and speaking up have a purpose because they, they push back evil so that we can have seasons of love and of peace. And so he says there's meaning in all of these things. And so the sunlight starts to come in. And, and last week kind of ended with, with this verse here in ver, uh, chapter 3. And, and uh, I, if you're turning to Ecclesiastes 3, I probably should too. Okay, Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, and, and in verse 15, it says, That which has already been... And that which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. And so it's talking about, hey, some of the story, like the story's already been written. We're experiencing it in real time. And so we said when the chapters are terrible, it means the story's not over. And it leaves us with this, I believe, great news. That God pursues what's been driven away. And we said that sin in our lives, sin in our world and culture, that has driven us away from the Lord. It's broken communion with one another. But God pursues for the purposes of restoration and reconciliation. And with that, there's repentance of sin. There is forgiveness. And there's a path forward with new life. And so as the sunbeams start to come in, we're like, okay, yeah, it's going to be good, right? There's, there's good news from here on out in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, and yet, like a basement that has light coming through it, you can see a lot. It's illuminated now. But if you've ever been in a room that just has like a, a basement window coming through, we know this too. That even in the most illuminating sun penetrating into that basement, there's still shadows. There's still darkness. And so we live and we walk and, and we navigate a world that has that tension, that has those shadows, that has that darkness in it. And, and so it, it leads us to ask questions about injustice and then even our own sin, how we reconcile that with God and how we reconcile that with one another. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 16 through 22. I've broken this up into three sections. We're going to start with verses 16 and 17 that really focus in on this question of if God is sovereign over time, if he is in control of all these seasons, why has he allowed injustice? Where are we going to find hope in this? Verses 16 and 17 say this. After that section on God pursuing. Moreover, or therefore, I saw under the sun in the places of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous 
and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Let's stop there. So we've got a problem, right? We've got these dark shadows that are in this kind of basement world we're in. And so he's, he's, yep, there is under heaven, but he's kind of back to looking under the sun in, in our kind of basement world, if we will. And so without God, uh, without regarding him and his ways and gratitude for what he's given, we're going to see that injustice and wickedness starts to invade and impact every aspect of life. And he says, hey, it's a really frustrating thing when wickedness is in the place of justice. When wickedness is found in the places of righteousness. We're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, we can think about this pretty easily, right? Uh, In terms of our world, when we see brokenness, we want to see it fixed. When we see wickedness, we want justice. When we've been wrong, we want justice. And that is an okay, in fact, a good longing. When something's broken, you should want it fixed. When something's evil, you should want it rejected. When harm has been done, you should want restoration, maybe even restitution. That's an okay and and good feeling and drive. And injustice and wickedness has impacted us individually. It's impacted us in families. It's impacted us in the church and in community and government and beyond. Now, don't despair, right? We're, We're made good in the image of God, right? So we're complex people. So we're not all just evil, horrible, wicked all the time, right? But we are at times. And he says, he's got a unique vexation or anger or frustration for when you think you're going to go to a place and get justice and don't. Or where you seek refuge in what you believe is a place of righteousness. And it ends up not being that. And so uh, the two easiest examples for that in our culture today would be the judicial system, right? And the church. How many of us have looked at a legal decision at some point in our life and said, like, what the heck was that? Justice wasn't done. Well, that person was declared not guilty. Well, okay, but, like, they totally did it. (laughs) They just have really, really good lawyers, and now we do documentaries about it, right? Or, maybe you can keep your hand down if you want. How many of us have been hurt in the church? A place of righteousness where instead we suffer pain and we suffer hurt. And so when we have these injustices, when we experience this pain uh, and, and we want this longing for healing, we want this longing for wickedness to end, we want longing for righteousness to, to reign, it's a good longing and we ask ourselves, where can we appeal for justice? And so if, if humanity is the cause of and the source of injustice, Right? We all have sin. We all have brokenness, right? And, and that is leading to places of injustice. And we say, okay, if humanity broke it, well, let's just go to humanity and see if we can fix it. And so again, we create these systems, man-made institutions, to try to find righteousness, even though some can be blatantly corrupt and, and like we said, render head-scratching verdicts. So we look to these institutions to cure injustice. And when we find them failing, we start to wonder why. Well, no, no, I mean, if we just get our best minds together, like we'll totally figure it out. And and what we forget is that in our search for justice and our belief that somehow we're going to create a perfect judicial system under the sun, is that whatever system that is, it's still going to be made up of people 
who are under the sun, who have sin, who have brokenness, who are using man's wisdom as best they can and finding it at times lacking. And so we get to our place at certain points in society and culture where we find things that are legal and still wrong. And I'll let you consider what those might be. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's just or right or good. And so it leads us to these places of frustration. Um, The great reformer uh, Martin Luther, um, several hundred years ago, so not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, um, in in commenting on these verses and how how Solomon and, and others become despondent in this totality of the injustice, Martin Luther says this, that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is not complaining because there's wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. Right? Where do you go when you can't find justice in the judicial system? And so we see riots in the streets. We see war. We see conflict. Where do you go when the church is screwed up? Oh, okay, well, let's just never, let's, you know, let's just not engage with the church. We'll do our own thing. I'll, I'll start my own thing. We'll, 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 we'll start becoming kings and queens of kingdoms of one. If you look at the, the cycle of God's people even attempting to try to rule themselves I- apart from God, you see it in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. At the end, it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And for some of us, we hear that. We're like, yeah, yes and amen. That sounds great. No, it was utter chaos. It did not lead to human flourishing, but rather abuse and brokenness and murder and, and oppression and just horrible, horrible behavior. Some of, the, some of the, the most darkest chapters of the Bible are in that book. And so we want to see things corrected and, and you know, we, we get set up for this pretty early in life, right? Um, what do we tell our kids when they're young, when they, when they kind of get upset in the playground, right? And they come up to us, so-and-so did this. And we say, life isn't fair. And as we get older and we suffer injustice, from the playroom to the courtroom, our cry is, life's not fair. It's not fair. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Uh, Isaiah Um, 5 verses 20 and 23, he says, uh, this prophet says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Later in the chapter he says, those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocence of their right. So we see perversion of what's good and right and then partiality so that it makes it very difficult for justice to reign, and so justice gets denied, and and when justice is denied, our desire for it doesn't go away, right? We're all like, well, guess we lost that one. We'll just move on. I have no angst or frustration at all. I've suffered no trauma from that. Uh, I'm just going to keep moving on with life, right? I mean, this isn't like, you know, like a college football game. We're like, oh, well, dang it, our team lost. Okay, Sunday's coming. Like, life moves on. When there's real injustice, when there's real pain, when you've been hurt, when you've been wounded, and justice doesn't happen, you are not satisfied. And you shouldn't be. 
right? We, we, we get these moments of clarity of holy frustration because we see our inability to confront and correct the injustices in the world that burst into our view. And that's part of why we said, hey, the more you know about the world, the more frustrated you're going to get because you're going to see more and more injustice. And it's going to make you cry out for things to be fixed. And so the preacher, he's seen the wickedness under the sun. And he's like, I want an answer. I want to know what's going to happen when you can't find justice in the place of justice and you find wickedness in the place of righteousness. Like, where's the good news here? It's in verse 17. Because his answer isn't, let's just fix these things. Let's try harder. He says, no. But God, verse 17, says it this way. Uh, He says, I said in my heart, God will judge. Like, you want to know where justice is going to come from? It's going to come from God. Like, we can exhale even in the face of injustice when we know that justice delayed will not be justice denied. But in fact, God will bring justice perfect justice. In fact, he'll bring a a phrase I want us to maybe hold on to, a beautiful justice. And so when we know that there is a day of judgment, like we're like, oh, that sounds so bad. Judgment's bad. Oh, I came into church. I haven't been here for a while. Now the guy's talking about judgment. No, when there's evil and unrighteousness and injustice in the world, knowing there's a day of justice and a day of judgment is good news, not bad. Because it means whatever is making our hearts ache will get fixed. Whatever wrongs that have been done to us, justice will be served. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In the face of evil and wickedness and brokenness in our world and our hearts, it is good news to know that there is a God who is over all who will judge. Because these verses, they they don't exist in a vacuum, right? They're they're part of this big thought in chapter three. We said this, this whole thing's a sermon, but this is in this section on seasons and times. And if there's a season for everything, it's good news to know that there's a season for justice and for judgment. There's, that God is not unaware of the injustice or evil that we see. See, I I think sometimes when when stuff's been revealed to us or we've experienced something, we think we're the only ones that see it. And maybe you you, you get to meet with a friend in a coffee shop and they see it too. Or maybe maybe now you have your your perfectly curated online space so that all you hear about is the stuff that you agree with. And so you're like, yeah, it is unjust. Why don't they know that at Fox? Why don't they know that at MSNBC? Because they're not on the same team. Okay. And, And we're like, wait, no, does anybody else see this? God does. He sees all of it. He knows all of it. In fact, he's a perfect judge of the the motives of what's happening. He knows all the actions. He knows all the attitudes. And so we're like, okay, there's a time of justice. There's a time of judgment. And there's something in us that that self-righteously says, yes, give it to him. And then we forget who we are. Because we always paint ourselves as the perfect righteous one. I want to be clear, where you've been wronged, where someone has harmed you, that was evil and that was wrong. Where you have been victimized, that's wrong and God sees it. 
But the Bible also says that no one seeks after God and that there is no one who is perfectly righteous. Romans uh, 5.3 says, or 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. We're like, well, yeah, but what about? No. So we have to be realistic about our imperfection, about our brokenness, about, I almost hate to use the word accountability, but the fact that that we are not the righteous judge of the world. There is one supreme court and it has one justice and that's God. And that is good news because we spent time this fall and being reminded of the character and nature of God, that he is good, he is powerful and he's loving and he's merciful. And, and like we need to remember that we're people who need mercy too. That mercy is not receiving the just consequences for our sin and brokenness. We are people who need mercy. And God's character is, is deep and rich in mercy. Because we, we're not just trying to balance the scales, right? We have this idea somehow um, that, that uh, you know, justice is just this blind lady holding things out and it'll just all work itself out on its own apart from God. But like we said, like all those systems, they're just people. Yeah, maybe some are doing their best, but the only one who can render proper judgment, who knows all of it and can reconcile all of it, is a big, holy, transcendent God that knows all and sees all. He knows what you've gone through. And that's a comfort for us. And he knows what you've done. And that should lead not to condemnation, but to conviction. Those are two different things. See, when we've been wronged, we want justice to be served. We want condemnation for the one that harmed us. But when we are the ones who have done wrong, what do we want? We want mercy. We want them to know that we don't want to be defined by what we've done. Or who we are even. We want mercy. We want to receive grace. So God is a God that through his Holy Spirit, when he talks about sin, the purpose, it says, is to lead to repentance, to turn from sin, to trust and follow the Lord, to, to not suffer eternal condemnation, but to have conviction that leads to repentance, which leads to a zeal for new life, which leads to restoration and forgiveness and joy. Not through our efforts to fix ourselves, but because what God has already done in our place in Jesus Christ. And so, we have to remember that all of us are accountable to God. And so, I want you to ask yourself, if there's a God who sees all and knows all, who are you when no one else is watching God sees you. God knows. If I played a replay of, of what was happening in my head through the course of this last week and we just put it up on the screen, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be here. <laughs> none of y'all would. And I'm convinced that we could do that with every one of us in this room and none of us would really want to be here. The fact that God knows everything about us and doesn't instantly 
just because of our sins separate us from him and condemn us should give us great confidence in God's mercy. And when we are incredibly frustrated with, with the timing of justice, with the timing of, you know, when, when is judgment going to come? It should lead us to some greater understanding that God's patience for us does not mean he doesn't care about justice. It means his desire for us is repentance and restoration. I am incredibly thankful that in my darkest moments in life, the times that I have sinned and I have wronged others, that God's justice wasn't swift and clear. But instead he gave me patience and he gave me mercy. And I have to remember that when others have hurt me and harmed me and I want, I want it fixed right now. No. God is patient with them. God is showing them mercy for the purposes, Lord willing, of their repentance and restoration. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due, what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church of people who had their faith in Jesus Christ. And so don't hear just a religious, I hope you haven't done enough to end up in the bad place. Maybe you're gonna, you know, maybe you can do enough good things from now until the end of your life to get to the good place. It's not the way it works. We'll get there a little later as we talk more about the cross of Christ and, and how God answers injustice with even actually, in a sense, more injustice. But as we consider the world we're in and our individual sin as well, and our individual stories where we've been impacted by sin, just know that God cares. That God is never indifferent to injustice. He cares. He cares deeply about it. He is just, he is patient, and he has his purposes. And so we can be patient to wait out in God's timing. And I say patience, and that's hard for us. Because we do want it fixed now. We do want resolution now. We want the, the whole story to wrap up well now. Some of us grew up in the 80s. Every single show wrapped up in 30 minutes. There was a problem. It got fixed. There was a moral at the end with some little music. And so we get in this, our heads that justice and, and brokenness will be solved right away. And we don't have a stomach for long story arcs. Because we don't want to endure. And so we, we get frustrated because we want justice now. And, and we're like, well, may, maybe, and I'm sure after I die, I'm never going to long for justice. And I, there's, I got news for you. In, in Revelation chapter 6, it's talking about people who've been martyred for the faith of Christ. That, that want to see God actually avenge their deaths in a way. It says this, they cry out for justice in Revelation 6. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Oh, praise God that we have a God who's holy and true in a time of corruption and lies. That was not in the text. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood to those who dwell on the earth? There's this longing and crying for a resolution at the end of the story that is ultimately good. And so we say things now like, hey, make sure you're on the right side of history. And Martin Luther King famously said that the course, or rather the arc of the moral universe, bends towards justice. 
The only way we can say those things is when we know that there is a God who is the author of history and there is a God who is the arbiter of justice. It is not about what we're going to be able to accomplish on our own in any way, shape, or form. Because man's answer for injustice has been done to us is more injustice on somebody else. And we can watch that play out in just cycles ad nauseum. What's happening right now, there's nothing new under the sun. All the conflict, all the frustration, all the, all the bitterness, all the brokenness is all just man's answering man's injustice. Woman too, your feet, okay, other, okay. We ask ourselves, like, wait, I, I thought this was about how the injustice gets answered, and now you're talking a lot about my soul and my life and my heart. And, and that's because systemically, none of us individually has the ability to impact that. And so these verses go on in verses 18 through 20, and Solomon the preacher wants to talk more about our, our hearts and our souls. And so he says this, and it, it gets kind of challenging, so we'll, we'll keep going. It says this. Verses uh, 18 through 20. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them. They may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity or vapor. All go to one place. All are from dust. And to dust they will return. And so we said, hey, justice delayed isn't justice denied. Right? That, that's a, a worldly concept that we have. Justice delayed is justice denied. We say, well, no, because there's a God overall, he apparently has a purpose for justice not happening in real time. And here in these verses, it's revealed that, yeah, he actually does have a purpose. Why does God delay justice? we got this interesting section that declares in... in a way that should maybe give us a bit of trepidation, that God is testing humanity. And some of you maybe came in weary and exhausted, and you're like, yep, I know God's testing me. Every day I fail. And, and I want to be clear, this is a different type of test. We get the concept of God testing uh, wrong a lot, because we just think that God's up there like, all right, well, I, I wrote the test, they should figure it out. Uh, if they can get at least a D, maybe they can move on. And, and instead, like, we think somehow that God's like, doesn't, isn't sure how it's all going to go. Here, it's so crystal clear. It says that the reason God is testing them is not because he wonders if they can handle this. It's not a revelation for God. It's intended, it says, to be a revelation for us. It says in verse 18, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God's testing isn't for God, it's for us. So that we can actually begin to see clearly how we treat one another under the sun apart from God. Another translation of verse 18 says, they by themselves, meaning again, apart from God, are but beasts. And I love that it uses the word beast because it kind of wipes away any kind of like Disney version of like animals that talk and are cute and all that stuff. Right, because like you know, right? You, you watch you, you watch Zootopia. I don't even know if that's Disney, whatever. Like so many cartoons and whatever. It's all about the animals that are cute. And in fact, animals—they're just better than people most of the time, right? Because we do horrible stuff like cut down trees, you know, to like build things, uh, right? You know, but animals, 
they're so precious. They're just cute and cuddly and, you know, they, they fly and they make milk and they got fur and all sorts of stuff and they're delicious, okay, right? So he's saying that by themselves they're beasts. So again, not the cute animals, but like the ugly ones, the really terrifying ones, that without God ruling over us, the dignity that he has bestowed on us when we start to divorce ourselves from that, we become beastly. That we're more like, like a naked ape than we are like a, a full man or woman. And so we, we kind of think like, well, we're the top of the food chain, we're distinct, but we're a lot more like cattle than we like to admit. And so he, he goes through and he talks a little bit about animals, right? And he says that, that while we are like beasts, and there are some similarities. I'll go through them quickly. Yep, we're created by God. Animals are created by God. He gives them breath and us breath. He gives them and us life. They live, we live, we eat, they eat, they reproduce, we reproduce. And, he's, and here he's saying, hey, there's no real advantage that man has over animals because they die too. Like there's, the, the laws of physics still apply whether you're a bunny or a person if you're on the road and a truck is coming down both going to be liquefied. You're going to die. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, right? He's like, you're from the earth, you're going to go back to the earth. And he's talking about a very secular perspective, a very godless perspective. If you grew up in the West, and most of us did, right? They're like, you've been educated your whole life to be told you are a cosmic accident. That your existence has no meaning or no purpose. You started out as ooze. Well, there was a bang before. Well, let's not talk about where the bang came from. Then you became an ooze. And then your ooze became something. And then you kind of became a beast. You kind of did this thing. And then you, you've all seen the chart, right? You know, the progression. Well, you're standing up straight, sipping lattes, right? And it's like, we won the evolutionary Hunger Games. And so we think that our dignity and worth and value is how well we've dominated the rest of creation. So we see ourselves as people of domination and then wonder why injustice reigns? When everything we've been taught, like ideas have consequences. Ideas and worldviews matter and have consequences. So if you say somebody's just a beast who won the evolutionary lottery or rather competition, then it, your survival and your joy and your purpose better be to maintain that. And so we start treating each other terribly. Human dignity is not a concept because we're not really set apart or above. It's like the Bloodhound Gang said, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. We're just animals. That was a reference to a song from 1999 that tells you exactly how uncool I am. Okay? See, while we have similarities to the animals, we need to know that beasts are savage, not civilized. Watch any documentary on the animal kingdom, and you will see cruelty, competition, bloodthirst, destruction. Uh, just this past week, did anybody see the picture of one alligator eating another alligator? Okay? Beastly. 
I, I just saw on the news this week as well that at Point Defiance Zoo in Tacoma, a, I want to get the phrase right that they used, a breeding introduction led to death of a female tiger. That is a terrible first date, right? If that was a white woman, there'd be a murder death podcast about it, right? Like that is awful. Okay, just, hey, just get some tigers together. What could go wrong? No, animals are beastly. They're consumed with their own self-interest, right? A whale goes through the ocean. We're like, oh, we got to save the whales. Where are the save the plankton signs? Right, what do the whales do? They just go through the big mouth, through a sea of plankton. Anybody trying to stop plankton genocide? No, and you shouldn't. Because they're not people. Because the animal kingdom is distinct from humanity. God has made us different than the animals. He has made us distinct. He has made us in his image. Worthy of dignity. Worthy of honor. Worthy of respect. Worthy of justice. And so we get weird about animals and, and, and think that somehow that they have some sense of morality. They don't. There's no justice or morality or grace and mercy in the animal kingdom. And so we play that out in our societies apart from God and, and our, our civilizations become beastly. Our history is littered with so much gross injustice. And there's not like, well, these were the good guys and these were the bad. I mean, sometimes, right? But then we realize the good guys weren't really that good at times. So we get really uncomfortable when we talk about history because we like it really just cut and dry when the reality is it's just cycles of beastly civilizations dominating one another over and over. Why not compete for food and resources? Why not establish dominant? Why not oppress the weak? Somebody's not doing something you like, just mandate that they do it. We constantly want to control one another. And when we do so, we're acting beastly. Like I said, ideas have consequences. And when we look at these great injustices in history, think about things like slavery or, um, or the Holocaust or abortion, it's always happening through the, the ideas we sh share about whether somebody's fully human or not. And so I think it's really important, no matter what the cultural season is, for us, if we're going to be Christians of, of people of, of truth and light and goodness and justice, to be listening to who is society saying needs to be demonized or dehumanized. And then just listen and watch. See, when we declare our independence from God, we do not become more godly, we become more beastly. We need, we need good news. And where Solomon talks a little bit about them being, um, humanity being like beasts, we need to be reminded that we're more than beasts. God's word says we're created like beasts, but set apart. We've talked about this. Genesis 1, 27, 28, early in the story, says this. So God created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. It didn't say, and God blessed the caribou. No, God blessed humanity with caribou, which is sometimes delicious when it's turned into chili, right? 
Okay. And they look nice and all sorts of, okay, anyway, moving on. I'm not even a hunter. I just like meat. We're called to be fruitful and multiply. Animals are too, but we're given this additional charge that sets us apart. And it says this, after be fruitful and multiply, right? They should have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. And I think there's something that just... The the, the hairs on the back of our heads stand up when we hear dominion. We hate that word because we mistake it with domination. Dominion is actually a very positive word in concept. Domination is painful. Dominion means cultivate, train, teach, give directional intent, protect, promote, empower the potential of others around you, create frameworks for flourishing. Like Like that's good news. Domination, subversion, control, abuse, violence, intimidation, manipulation, insidious pleasure in the midst of pain. Do not confuse dominion with, with uh, domination. See, like we said, when, when we reject God, we are less like God and more like beasts. And so God, God hates that injustice. And the Bible goes on, and because sin entered the world, God says, hey, your, your work and, and your life of being fruitful and multiplied, there's going to be difficulties. Genesis 3.19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, and you shall return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God says there is going to be an end of our reign. There is that death, right? That time we said of, of judgment. And here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher kind of says, yeah, we're just the same as the beast. They die, we die. So then what? Well, we said Ecclesiastes is never built to stand on its own in the Bible. Right? We said that Ecclesiastes is, is a pathway that gets us to Jesus. It's not the destination. And so elsewhere in the Bible, when it talks about humanity and being beastly and pride and death, it says this, Psalm 19, excuse me, Psalm 49, verse 12, says, man or humanity in his pomp or pride will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Oh, okay. That sounds familiar. Oh, but verse 15. But God. Again, good news from the Lord intervening. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, right? You know, hell, underworld, whatever. For he will receive me. So it's our pride that makes us beastly. We have no ability to worship anyone in ourselves, but in our pride we think that we are God, that we're going to die like the animals. And so, but instead it says, no, there's a God who's good and is gracious. That you are more than just a body. You are an embodied soul. And your soul and my soul and all of our souls need saving because of sin. Sin done to us that defiled and sin that we have done that has distanced us from God and other people. And so here's some good news. Verses 21 and 22 as we begin to close. It says this, 21 and 22. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth? It's a very kind of agnostic question. So I saw there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So here's Ecclesiastes again asking the big questions. What happens to our soul after we die? Who knows what's going to happen after we die? And, and there's no answer here. And, and again, we said this is part of a destination. So all of us ask this question. All of us want to know what happens to us after we die. All of us want to know, like, do we die just like animals? Like what happens to our soul? And, and there's this idea um, called annihilationism. 
And it gets really popular in philosophy classes, in, in colleges, in high schools, and wherever else, because annihilationism says, hey, at the end of this, you're done, that's it. And you're like, why is that good news? Well, I mean, it could be good because you're like, all right, I can just kind of get what I want now, do all the things I want now. Who cares about the relational wake involved? Who cares what my consumption does to others? Just go, go, go. Don't even worry about legacy because when I'm done, I'm done. And the reason that's good news is because there's no day of judgment. But when there is a God who's judge over all, and there is appointed for humanity once to die and then judgment, we can't just cling to annihilationism. We need to look for not just justice, but mercy. It is an honest, agnostic question, right, about our destiny and our legacy. And we're not going to find this in this part of Ecclesiastes. He wrestles with it here and later. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, we'll get there later uh, in a couple weeks or, or, or so. It says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So we are embodied souls. We are full people who are made uh, mind, body, and soul. And our soul will go to the Lord. And we have a distinct destiny, uh, distinct from the animals. And that destiny is eternity. That God will deal with us. And he'll deal with them too. And, but we need to focus on ourselves first and foremost. Because until we know or have assurance of eternal life tomorrow, we will never have real joy in our lives today. Let me say that again. Until we know and have assurance of eternal life tomorrow, we will never have real joy and rest in our lives today. There's a freedom and a joy to our work when we realize that this is not all there is because, because when things aren't going well, we have hope. That this isn't all there is. And when things are going well and something is great, we know it is but a shadow of how much better things are going to be. A time with no tears and no rain, right? Um, our family uh, had Friday off and we went up to Mount Baker um, and we might have to crank the sound system. Oh man, men's, the, the men's study's uh, been, been rad. Lots of guys participating in that. And, and it rained so hard uh, that somebody was like sharing what was going on their week. I was like, nobody heard you. You need to speak up. Um, praise God for a roof um, and pray that it holds. Okay. When we went up to Baker, it was beautiful. And, and, and actually the, the road to the top was actually blocked. We couldn't get there yet. And we were disappointed because we had gone on this long journey to, to get there, right? You get up at you know, five in the morning and you go up and, and we're up there. It's like eight o'clock. And, and the road of the last few miles to the glorious perspective where you could see everything was blocked. And instead of desolation and frustration and what are we going to do now? We're like, well, we better, we better live where we're at now. This is clearly a limit to what we can do, so let's, let's go find what we can do now. And we found this amazing trail right where we were at that took us to these lakes, and it was a beautiful creation. And I talked to my kids about it. Like, I don't get all preachy on every, um, you know, hike. You know, most of the time it's just, please don't slip and die or whatever. Like, but I got to this place where I said, guys, isn't this beautiful? And they said, yeah. And if this is the beauty of God's creation in a world that has sin, how much better will the new heavens and new earth be? 
free from sin and corruption, if this is what God has for us now. And as I think about this right now, that road being blocked is our lives today. Yes, there is a day where we will make it to the top. Not because of our efforts, but because of what God has done. He has promised us he will bring us to that destination. And we'll get to see it all and experience it all. But in the meantime, we better enjoy and navigate what we have now humbly, graciously, um, with gratitude and worship and enjoyment. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8 says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. Right? That should cause some angst. But it says this, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So who can give us a vision of what comes after us? It's not Solomon. It's Jesus. Because Jesus has suffered in our place. Jesus has lived the life that none of us have lived. Like the Bible is really, really clear that Jesus was sinless. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is holy. And he goes to a place of justice, right? The court system that was both religious and secular together. They should have figured out, figured out. They should have nailed it, right? No, they didn't. They nailed him. They nailed him to a cross, even though he was sinless. Our God has suffered a greater injustice than any of us have ever suffered. That does not minimize your suffering in any way, shape, or form. It maximizes God's empathy for your suffering. He knows it even more than you do. He is a God who suffered. He suffered injustice. Sinless Jesus, fully God, fully man, and he's treated like a beast. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter. That's what our Jesus went through. Jesus, God the Son, was treated beastly so that you and I could be received into the kingdom of God. God doesn't see you as beastly. He sees you as godly because of Jesus in your place. So when we talk about the gospel being good news, it's not fair. Because if the gospel was fair, you and I would be the ones on the cross. Instead, Jesus is on the cross in our place. And we get mercy and grace from him that is in no way fair. But he gets to be the just and the justifier. Suffering in our place, for justice and rising again so that we can have redemption in new life now. And so we rest in what Jesus has done. We live and work and enjoy today. We long for tomorrow as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.